Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective and outside of the Westminster bubble, you're in the right place. You may have already seen the Northern Agenda daily newsletter, which drops in your inbox before lunchtime on weekdays, featuring the latest news, opinion and analysis of the issues that matter around our great region of 15 million people. But once a week, this podcast is going to give you a chance to hear from the people behind the Northern Agenda as we go into a bit more detail about what makes the North tick and what's got our political leaders talking. A bit about me, my name is Rob Parsons and I'm the Northern Agenda editor. I've been a journalist in Yorkshire for eight years now and around the country for the best part of two decades. And joining me each week is Dan O'Donoghue, the Northern Agenda's Westminster editor, who's keeping his ear to the ground in SW1 and following the activities of the 150 or so Northern MPs in Parliament. So hi Dan, how are you? Hi Rob, not too bad thanks. Uh, Yes, as you said, I'm based in the House of Commons press gallery for the Northern Agenda, which probably sounds a little bit more glamorous than it actually is. It's a little dusty corridor just above the House of Commons chamber. I've been working in Westminster for the last four years now, previously with a focus on Scottish politics. But I'm originally from Birkenhead and I've worked on many Northern newspapers in my time. So it's fantastic to be on board and back right about my home patch. Fantastic stuff. So a homecoming for Dan in the North. So I'm in Leeds and Dan is down in Westminster. Each week, we'll be bringing in journalists from Reach's titles around the North to talk about the political stories they're working on. We'll also have guests to discuss the big political issues affecting our region. And of course, the big event of this week is Labour Conference in Brighton, where leader Keir Starmer is looking to reassure nervous party activists that he does, in fact, have a vision for the party and that the 14,000 word essay he's in the process of writing about his strategy is going to help win back the red wall at the next general election. Ahead of that, Dan's been speaking to former Shadow Chancellor and Liverpoolian John McDonnell about the direction the party's going in. And it's fair to say he's not happy with Keir Starmer looking to rewrite the rules that led to Jeremy Corbyn's election as leader. It's quite an attack on the rank and file members of our party. And I'm just, I'm shocked at it, really. Keir got elected only 18 months ago on a one member, one vote. At no stage during that leadership election, did he say that he was going to change any of these rules? Quite the reverse. He said on members, he said more. he wanted more member-level engagement and activity. So I think it really does open him up to charges of dishonesty. And Labour's Ian Byrne has opened up to the Northern Agenda about the Hillsborough disaster. The Liverpool MP was at the fateful match in 1989 and is now using his position to call for a change in the law to give more powers to victims of public disasters. You know, for me, you know, as a 16-year-old that that, uh, that witnessed that and then has basically lived your life uh, with what you're seeing and, and, you know, and how we were treated by the establishment and with many, many other uh, friends and, and, and uh, people you know, from my family uh, that were involved as well. So, so basically it's had a, a hugely significant uh, impact on, on my life and I was honoured uh, to, to, to actually stand in the chamber on Thursday and, and, and give my side of the account, that was my personal side of the account. But before we get into that, let's hear from Jen Williams, the Manchester Evening News' political editor, who's going to be heading to Brighton herself to follow the action. Jen, welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. And I get the impression that for you and quite a few of the press pack, a lot of the attention at Labour Conference is going to be on one man. Would that be fair? Yeah, I mean, this is going to be Andy Burnham's first big outing, isn't it? I suppose since before the pandemic and that there's been a lot of water under the bridge during that time. So I think 
whether or not it warrants it, I think that there will be a lot of political journalistic attention probably on on Andy Burnham's movements around conference, his various pronouncements on things. It's been a tricky period for Keir Starmer and there's been plenty of speculation about Andy Burnham being the, the prince across the water, I guess, which he has kind of not really stepped back from, from fueling himself. So certainly I will be on a degree of Burnham watch, but then I'm always on a degree of Burnham watch because uh, most of the time he's up here doing things here. Yes, yes, I suppose so. I feel like we don't want to fall into the trap that some of the national press fall into of viewing any discussion about Andy Burnham through the prism of, is he going to be the next Labour leader? Because obviously in the North and in Greater Manchester, he, you know, the things that he's actually doing on the ground are much more interesting and relevant than whether he may be Labour leader in the future. But I, I, I was at the Transport for the North conference in Leeds earlier this week, and I, I couldn't help be struck by Andy Burnham. He was speaking there, and he was sort of the biggest name on the on the agenda. And and his pitch seemed to be very much that he he didn't want Manchester to be seen as the London of the North that sort of gets its own way at the expense of other northern areas and his appeal was very much the north all needs to work together and it is hard not to see a little bit of you know an attempt to appeal to a a wider coalition across northern England rather than just people in Manchester you know with his eye on possibly another job two or three years two or three years down the line. Um, Yeah I mean I think he's talking to several audiences at an event like that isn't he and I think there's there's always been or certainly in recent years there's been criticism uh, or grumblings, I guess, in other parts of the north of England, that that Manchester has a tendency to come in and dominate these these kinds of discussions, particularly around transport, and we've seen tensions within TFN on that basis. So I think part of it is just about making the right noises in that respect and being seen to be a kind of team player and not everything being about Manchester. But yes, you know, there's a secondary audience there, isn't there? Or possibly two other audiences. There's the Labour membership, and then there's there's the electorate as a as a whole. And I think. You know, yeah, I agree. I get very irritable when the entire story becomes about, yes, what's he going to do next? Because he's, his patch is currently big enough with three million people with responsibility over quite a lot of public service delivery. But having said that, political drama being what it is, I don't doubt that that will be one of the narratives that sort of runs like a thread through through Labour conference. And I think that I've been trying to think what the parallel is. And the first thing that came to mind was David Miliband towards the end of, of the last Labour government and people wondering whether there was going to be a sort of Julius Caesar moment. But actually, somebody pointed out to me this morning that the parallels probably more with Boris Johnson. There was a conference that sticks in my mind, which I, I was trying to figure out which year it was, and I think it was 2018, where he was back to being backbencher again at Conservative Party conference and still gave a speech to a packed auditorium. I, I mean, it was kind of like shows, showbiz politics. The queue through conference was so huge to go and see Boris Johnson as a backbencher. And I think it was happening at the same time as the Home Secretary speech. And by comparison, there was hardly anybody in the hall. Now, I mean, Andy Burnham won't get that kind of platform uh, at Labour conference. And actually, reasonably so, because if you're going to give Andy Burnham that kind of platform, then you you by rights ought to give the same platform to people like Tracy Brabin in West Yorkshire or or, or Steve Rotherham in Liverpool. On the face of it, it's perfectly reasonable that um, that he doesn't get get that, that extra platform. But, you know... The, the direct comparison, therefore, isn't doesn't quite work. But there's something about that kind of print across the water when you've got a kind of a leader of perhaps not perfectly resounding strength uh, or still yet to prove themselves 
who's got that kind of show busy thing going on, which Andy Burnham has very much developed during the pandemic with his kind of King of the North thing that sort of creates that sort of political drama and that kind of political narrative that that writers love, you know. And it's also, there's also, it, it, it does play in a little bit into this question of can Labour reach those votes that it was unable to reach at the 2019 election that Boris Johnson was um, was was able to do in 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 new places that the Tories hadn't done previously, and I think that that is a very much a live debate within the Labour Party whether Keir Starmer is going to be able to do that. And suddenly you have this kind of very visible populist Northern Mayor appearing in a place where you know Labour members have not been able to gather in those numbers now for a couple of years. You'd have to not have any instinct as a political journalist not to be kind of a bit intrigued by that it is going to be interesting I think I guess the other thing that I should say though is that fundamentally Andy Burnham does absolutely have a job at the moment and that really matters and I think I imagine that one of the things that he will be keen to push at Labour conference and that will then be the same at the Conservative Party conference in particular is how Greater Manchester sees its role within this kind of wider uh, regional inequality levelling up. Like, what do you need to do in order to close those divides that we've all been talking about for so long? And I imagine that he will be talking about that stuff on the fringe at Labour conference. And I'm sure talking about it a lot more at Tory conference as well, because at that point we'll be talking about, you know, what is Greater Manchester's pitch to government, I suppose. But I think it's important that that doesn't kind of get lost in this, because there is a really important debate to be had for the Labour Party, as much as there is for the government about, well, what are you going to do to narrow those geographical divides? Yeah, I think you're right. And I mean, I suppose, to some extent, the, uh, the argument that you're making about Andy Burnham you could in theory make about other metro mayors because you know the uh, the last local elections which didn't go well for Labour one of the few areas in which it did go well was regional metro mayors getting re-elected or you know winning over conservative conservative held seats or strengthening their majorities you know it was interesting I thought that Jamie Driscoll the Norfolk Time mayor recently said that he believed the next Labour leader should be from the north, which is not unreasonable, but also one of the northern mayors because he he believes that they have a a record of of delivery which you know the the current Labour shadow cabinet Labour administration doesn't doesn't have because they've been out of power for so long. And I I mean I I don't know to what extent that argument holds water because obviously Andy Burnham has powers that other Labour metro mayors don't have, and you know the the nature of devolution is such that, you know, the powers that any Metro mayor has is still relatively limited. So in terms of what they can point to that they've actually achieved that could help them get into government is perhaps a a point that might come up at at conference as well. So anything else that you're looking out for, particularly at Labour conference? I'm sure that others will say the same thing, but, you know, clearly Keir Starmer is intending to go to war with the left of the party with his reforms to the internal voting system for leadership elections, which is a risk and may or may not go through. But I was talking to someone earlier on who was saying, actually, you know, the calculation here is not so much that Keir Starmer is going to win that vote and sort of, as it were, drive out the left. It's more that he wants to be seen to have been having that battle in the first place because the public can see him defining himself as not being Jeremy Corbyn. And, you know, they were saying for Labour people going out on the doorstep, 
people are still saying to them, well, no, we're not voting Labour because of Jeremy Corbyn. And they were saying, like, well, Keir Starmer needs to define himself as not being that. So, so long as he has had that symbolic battle, that's that's what matters the most, although obviously he won't want to lose it. So I think that will be an absolutely pivotal moment at conference. I think that we're not going to get a raft of hammered out and nailed down party policies. That's the kind of thing that you would expect to happen closer to a general election. But what they absolutely are going to have to do is spell out what the party stands for and who it stands for and that really the membership will need to come out the other side of this feeling that that has been defined and feeling some of those jitters that I think you mentioned at the beginning have been calmed and soothed a bit knowing the Labour Party not everybody will come out happy and there's bound to be some bad blood whatever happens but I think they need to feel that they're moving forward again and obviously we'll have to see what that 14,000 word essay contains if any of us actually get to the end of it. Yeah, I'll be reading it with interest, maybe in instalments. So, Jen, thank you so much for that. That has set the scene ahead of Labour conference. Now let's hear Dan talking to former Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell. Delegates, politicians and journalists will descend on Brighton this weekend for the Labour Party conference. It's the first in-person event since 2019, owing to the pandemic. With me to discuss the hopes and expectations of the party faithful is former Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell. John, welcome. Uh, thanks a lot for inviting me on. A pleasure. It's great to have you. I suppose it only makes sense to start really with Keir Starmer's controversial plan to scrap the one member, one vote rule. John, I saw you calling for party unity earlier this week. Has this move destroyed any hope of that? Uh, it might do. It might do the way um, Keir is behaving at the moment, which I'm quite shocked about really. This is our first party conference for quite a while because of COVID. So it's the first time we're physically meeting together. And I think, well, if you look at it, by the end of this conference, we most probably win within about 18 months of a general election. I think Johnson will go 2023, most probably April, May, that time. Might even go before because there's rumours he might go before to avoid the COVID inquiry. But more likely, no prime minister, unless they're forced to, goes the full five years. They choose their period, usually about a year before. So I think it'll go April, May 2023. So this conference is absolutely key to basically setting out the sort of vision we want for a society we want to create, set out some of the key policies we want to advocate, and then we'll campaign on those for this coming period. And I thought that's what we were going to do, and it could be a real success. But Keir is just really thrown this hand grenade into the whole process by bringing forward these proposals to change the whole way in which we select our leader and also the way in which we select MPs and also reducing the number of motions, the issues that we'll be debating at conference as well. It's quite an attack on the rank and file members of our party. And I'm just, I'm shocked at it, really. Keir got elected only 18 months ago on a one member, one vote, you know, In most democracies, that's what democracy means. One person has a vote and that's it. He got elected on that process. At no stage during that leadership election did he say that he was going to change any of these rules. Um, In fact, quite the reverse. He said on members, he said he wanted more member level engagement and activity. Um, So I think it really does open him up to charges of dishonesty 
if he's not careful, if he pushes this, tries to push this through? Because people will say, why didn't you tell us when you stood as leader? Well, just just picking up on that point, John, I mean, given that he didn't mention this 18 months ago, do you think in some way he should face a leadership challenge or a contest over this? I think, look, there's two things. One, Every other Labour leader, when they've introduced changes like this, have gone through a full consultation. That's the first thing. Second thing, they've usually allowed the constituency parties to meet, the unions to meet, and take time over it and come to some consensus. He's not. He should do that. He's not allowed that to him. But if he wants to plough ahead, in all honesty, he should go back to the people who elected him in the first place and say, look, this is what I didn't tell you then. This is what I want to do. And yes, that does mean... That does mean a leadership election, but why not if he, if he so feels so strongly about this? I hope he just drops the thing because it's a it's a complete distraction. I, I represent um, a working class multicultural community. I'll tell you what we're concerned about. £20 cut in universal credit in a few weeks' time. Energy prices going up. We've, we've had major layoffs of people at the end of furlough. So people not getting any income at all. We, price rises are going up and inflation's going up. And people are having a tough time. Are they? Do we really want to focus on the constitution of the Labour Party? Shouldn't we be concentrating on that? And then also we have this existential crisis of climate change. Aren't they the issues that this conference should be concentrating on? And yet at least the first day, if not first two days, will be sport by rows. And some of them, I think what's happened is some people around um, Keir Starmer have said, look, go in there, de- de- show how strong you are as a leader by defeating your own members. Well, actually, that that doesn't work in these circumstances. It just shows you're a divided party and people won't vote for a divided party. And if, if he does try and bounce it through with a, some grubby deal, um, to be honest, it, it won't go away after a couple of days. It'll build resentment for the next six, 12 months. It'll come up as reselection of MPs comes up. And we'll spend our time, instead of focusing on being an effective opposition to the Tories and preparing for the election, we'll spend our time on arguments over Labour's constitution. It's a bizarre political strategy. I mean, I, I, I was at the Labour conference, the last in-person one in 2019. And, you know, I, I mean, you'll remember better than I, but the big internal row then was over the deputy uh, leadership role and, and whether that should be abolished. And I just wondered, it seems, I don't, I don't know, what, why does kind of Labour always seem to, to eat itself? I mean, especially in the run-up to a conference, there always seems to be some internal row or, or disagreement. What a lesson to be learned from that. You know, here we had a group of advisors. That, Jeremy just put his foot down and said, we're not having that. You know, a group of their advisors, people arguing, pushing that. It was the scrapping the deputy leadership. Can you remember? It's an attack on Tom Watson. And when Jeremy found out, he put his foot down and said, we're not having that. And that's what Keir should do now. Because it, what Jeremy said, quite right, it's a complete distraction from the real issues we should be concentrating on. And that to repeat that mistake now, I think, is disastrous. Because things are so much more serious now. You know, after COVID, you know, I, we've had a terrible time during COVID. Hopefully we're coming out of it, but people have really suffered. And that's the issue. We, those are the issues we should be concentrating on, not arguments amongst ourselves. Do you think um, Keir, in a way, has maybe squandered an opportunity? Because if you look the other week, the, the polling, which showed perhaps less of a boost for Labour, but more of a drop for 
for Boris Johnson, you know, this could have been an opportunity to really galvanise the party and, and bring people together. Do you think he's kind of squandered that, perhaps? If he does try and force this through, he's at risk of doing that, definitely, because here's an opportunity here. You know, a lot of the a lot of the issues that are, people are facing now revert back to Johnson's failure to actually manage this country and our economy properly. So here's an opportunity really to objectively set out for people both our criticisms of Johnson and at the same time the alternatives that we've got. Instead, we're going to be arguing about the Labour Party rulebook. And who's interested in that apart from you know, Labour, some Labour Party members? We're interested in it if it undermines democracy in the party. And that seems... I, I sometimes... I, Keir hasn't been around in politics for very long. And I just think he's making a huge mistake here. But also, I think he needs to look at those people around him because all we're talking, the main issue we're talking about is how to elect a leader. When do we elect a leader? We elect a leader if there's been a challenge to a leader or we elect a leader if we've lost an election. So does that mean some of these people are planning either to challenge Keir or are they planning for the loss of the election? It's absolutely defeatist. So... My view, I'm really suspicious of some of those people who are driving this forward. And I think Keir should do what Jeremy did, put his foot down and say, we're not having it. Just sticking with that theme, and I mean, I don't know if you, you put much salt in, in polls at all, but going by the performance over the last kind of 18 months, year or so, under Keir, can Labour win the next election? If it, if it comes in 2023 or, or, or sooner, you know, is he the man to, to lead that part the party into the next election? In the polls themselves, the Labour and Tory gap has narrowed, but it's largely as a result of Tory votes going to don't know, not coming across to us. Very few coming across to us. Part of that is because people don't know what we stand for. And when you go on that doorstep canvassing or when you're talking to people, you can criticise the Tories. And it's like sending our shadow cabinet members out to the media do an effective criticism of the Tories, but then <clears throat> media interviewers will say, well, what's, what are you going to do about it? What's your policy? And at the moment, all we get is, well, wait until the manifesto comes out. Well, the lesson of December 19 general election defeat was that that election was called sooner than the normal political cycle. We It was a Brexit election, of course, it dominated that. But also, to overcome some of that, we were throwing policy after policy at people, all individually very popular, but actually, when you put them all together, people said they lack credibility and deliver. So it takes about 12 months to 18 months to land a policy, announce it, explain it, rebut the criticisms of it, and then bed it in. We're running out of time to do that. That's the problem. So the... This Labour Party conference for Keir should have been this, or still could if he pulls these ideas about the arguing over the leadership elections. This could be the, the conference where he sets out that vision and he starts that real debate about some of the specific policies. If he doesn't do that, we're going to run out of time. Just turning to policy, you know, we've had this reshuffle uh, from Boris Johnson in the last week. He's created this new levelling up ministry with Michael Gove at its head. You know, it's clearly aimed at cementing their red wall seats. What do you think Labour need to do to win back the North and to make the case that Labour is, is again the party of the North? 
Five years ago, I think it was, I did one of my regional economic conferences in Liverpool and I did a, a report on the inequalities of investment between the North and the South in London. And it was scandalous. It was a scandal. And what we said then is that what we would do is introduce a policy which ensured that the North got fair treatment. And I argued, for example, like there's such a thing as the Barnet formula, you know, where Scotland get a certain cut every year. And it's partly negotiated, but partly also set around a basic formula. And I was arguing that we should move towards that formulaic approach so that never will the North again be in a situation where, for example, on transport investment, London was getting four or five times what was happening in the North itself. And the other issue as well, as we went into the Treasury, we're going to change the Green Book. The Green Book is not green environmentally, it's green because it's coloured green. And that, but the Green Book determines how decisions are made. So we were going to change the Green Book rules to ensure, yes, they were environmentally friendly as one priority, but the second was that it would be based upon a quality of investment around the country. Now, I think they're the policies that we need to pursue. Now, the Tories have tried to steal some of that. The reality is they, they're not delivering. I think they'll break a lot of people's hearts by not doing that. And they're not even talking about the scale of investment that we were talking about that is needed. And we, you know, we were talking about an investment programme of nearly 500 billion. And a lot of that would go into the north because that's where the infrastructure needed improving. Remember, we were also establishing a national investment bank with a northern arm, you know, and the way in which decisions would then be made about that investment would be made in the north, not in London, the southeast and, and in Whitehall. So the Tories are going to try and steal some of those policies, but we could be out there advocating. I'll give an example. I went... When we were launching some of those policies, Stevie Rotherham up in Liverpool, he said, look, one of the things about energy production in this area, we've got wave power. So why don't we have a barrage across the Mersey that can then create electricity for some of the districts in, in Liverpool? Brilliant idea. We then looked at, well, can we do that elsewhere? More come elsewhere where there's, again, we could harness the sea. So when, you, when you're involved in that sort of policy making and you're involving local people, the local ideas are coming up. You build upon them, but you make sure they're properly resourced. What Keir should be doing is a tour of the country on issues like that, bringing people together. What ideas have you got locally? How can we invest in them? How can we make sure you're driving them within, the, within your local communities? And I think in that way, we can expose the Tories of just being, to be honest, this rhetoric that they come out with. You know, I've seen so many press releases from government ministers about what they're going to do in the north. And, and if they just produce one tenth of what they promised, it would be a major breakthrough. But Keir could be working with Stevie Rother, Andy Burnham, Jamie Driscoll, laying down the plans for the future. Just lastly on that point, really, I, I spoke to Jamie Driscoll up in the, the north of Tyne uh, the other week, and he was very keen to see a bit more involvement from the Metro Mayors in, in yeah. Keir's team. He, he suggested an idea of maybe involving the Metro Mayors in his shadow cabinet to, to kind of try and give a voice to the north, I suppose. And, and, and at the end of the day, these are elected Labour politicians who are, who are there doing the business for their local communities. I mean, would you like to perhaps see a bit more engagement on, on a national scale with, with Labour's mayors? It's a good idea. That's what I was doing on a regular basis. We were meeting and talking through the development of policy and also the very specific issues in, in local um, towns, communities, etc., I think Jamie's idea of bringing them into shadow cabinet is a very good idea. And even if Keir thinks, well, that'll make too big a shadow cabinet, 
a lot of the work is done in sub cabinet subcommittees. So you could bring the mayors into a cabinet subcommittee that then reports on to shadow, the real shadow cabinet itself. So there's all sorts of options. I think Jamie's got a good idea about that because you've got to remember if we're really, if we're really sincere about devolving powers out of London, taking the hands the, those powers out of the hands of civil servants in particular in, in London, well, you've got to ensure that you the structures are there to deliver on the ground itself. And that does mean then um, those elected mayors and other structures that you're using, you build into national policymaking. Who better to advise a Labour prime minister about what's happening in the North East than Jamie and the contacts that he's got within these region? It's the same with Andy in Manchester, the same with Stevie in, in Liverpool. We've got to build upon that and integrate it into government. Remember my background, you know, I'm a, I'm a Scouser, I was born in Liverpool, etc., but my family moved south. I wind up in London. I was the chair of finance on the Greater London Council, you know, one of the most effective regional bodies that we ever had, you know. I And at that point in time, actually, even, uh, even in the worst days of Thatcher, there was an acknowledgement that actually we had a role to play. She eventually abolished it for political reasons. But actually, we were administering services very effectively. When I meet I meet people in the city at the banks and things like that. When I was meeting them, my role as Shadow Chancellor, I used to say to them, this meeting would be underwater if it wasn't for the GLC and my, me as Chair of Finance, because we built the Thames Barrier. So when you give regional structures the resources and the powers, they do it, and they do it effectively. So, plenty to digest there from John McDonnell, but now let's hear Dan's second interview with Liverpool MP Ian Byrne, who's campaigning to give more powers to victims of public disasters. Last week, I was fortunate enough to be in the House of Commons press gallery to hear Liverpool West Derby MP Ian Byrne's moving speech on the need to give more powers to the victims of public disasters. Ian joins me down the line now. For our listeners, I wondered if perhaps you could start by telling us about your own personal experience of public disaster at Hillsborough in 1989. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me on. And I mean, you could be here all day speaking about that, you know, but it just, I think I think I encapsulated it within the contribution that I made to Maria Eagle's uh, debate, you know, the usually important debate which we had, which we had on Thursday uh, regarding the Public Advocate Bill. So, you know, for me, you know, as a 16-year-old that that, uh, that witnessed that and then has basically lived your life uh, with what you're seeing and, and, you know, and how we were treated by the establishment and with many, many other uh, friends and, and, and uh, people you know, from my family uh, that were involved as well. So, so basically it's had a, a hugely significant uh, impact on on my life, and I was honoured uh, to, to to actually stand in the chamber on Thursday and 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 give my side of the account. That was my personal side of the account. So if it's resonated with people across the land, which which you know it has from the reaction that I've had, I'm I'm humbled by that, and also uh, you know I'm I'm actually proud that it, that it, that I had that reaction because you know if you speak about something so deeply personal, you're you're always worried about. You know, upsetting people or but I've had a I've had an overwhelmingly positive reaction to the speech and the major thing is that hopefully we get the change in law which Miri has been a champion for, for for so long and for me that was the that's the all important thing behind you know that that resonated hopefully hopefully resonates from the, from 
the contribution that I made. You, you, you spoke, I mean, really powerfully in that debate about the way you were treated and your family were treated by the establishment and by the and the powers back that be. I just wonder if you could perhaps explain what kind of new protections and, and powers will come in in this this bill or proposal that's being put forward by Maria Regal and, and how would it, I suppose, stop people having to go through what you went through and so many, many others went through? Maria's push, you know, for the independent public advocates basically made as what happened in 2015, isn't it, when we had the HIP report? So we waited all that time and, you know, living through, obviously, seeing friends and family actually going to the court and seeing what it was doing to them during the various inquests and, and seeing the complete and utter disdain, you know, how we were getting treated by the establishment and, you know, heads of the report and politicians and... And, you know, just just not challenging the narrative that had been built, you know, not taking the time to, to actually listen to what was getting said by the families and the survivors. And I think that was that's something which, you know, I, I struggle, I, I struggle to comprehend now. The establishment's stitch up smear campaign was that effective that, you know, the politicians who stood in the same chamber as I did on Thursday, some did. There were some honourable exceptions, but many of them just swallowed the entirety of that campaign and didn't listen and didn't want to listen and were very lazy and, and for me you know it took the uh, the HIP report and and putting that panel together to break down the litany of lies which which have been told about us and you know affected so many people and continues to affect so many people to this day after that debate I was I was in there to listen to the minister kind of responding and he seemed to say a lot of the right words pay tribute to a lot of really powerful speeches during that debate but in terms of the, the substance of what he said was it what you wanted to hear are we going in the right direction on this do you think well I mean Millie is It'd be good to get on and go, and go through, obviously, her experiences, which she's been having a dialogue. But I think we were extremely disappointed that Robert Buckland uh, left the role as the Minister of State for Justice because I think Robert Buckland, in the, the, the brief conversation I had when I was standing next to Maria a couple of months back, uh, it was positive. And I think Maria thought that, you know, they were moving in the right direction. Now, you've got to hope that... Uh, Dominic Robb, the new Minister of State for that position, actually carries on that work. And the Minister made all the right noises. He said he was going to come back before the end of the year, which is still too long. But the commitment was there. You've just got to hope that Robb actually takes this and does the right thing, does the right thing for the people who are going to be involved in future disasters, because they will happen, won't they? You know, they, you know undoubtedly things happen. And, and just do the right thing for the people of this country, because no... No group of people, you know, as I outlined in the speech, no, you know, no one should ever have to go through what the families and survivors and the city of Liverpool went through for Hillsborough. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts like this one. See you next week. Bye-bye. The North in Numbers podcast tells the human stories behind various statistics for the North of England. Each episode takes a look at the figures that particularly affect the North, whether that's soaring house prices across the region due to the pandemic or the boom in distilleries that has led to a northern renaissance in gin. Join us as we speak to experts and local people to get their take on the issues facing their communities. 
with occasional appearances from special guests, such as actor and activist Michael Sheen, who you can hear on the latest episode speaking about the importance of local news.